Good evening. Uh, tonight in our lesson, we're going to be looking at a, at a story that pops up in the book of Joshua, and it's actually near the end. It's in Joshua 22. But before we get to it, there are a couple of um, important passages to keep in our minds that kind of serve as a helpful background to the story of Joshua 22. If you're unaware of these other passages, Joshua 22 won't make a ton of sense. Um, Joshua 22 is a conflict that arises among some of the tribes of Israel, and we find out how they kind of have a conversation. There's some, um, some assumptions that they're making that aren't entirely accurate. There's a lot of um, uh, judging that's taking place without all the information. They almost go to war with each other. Like there's almost a civil war in Israel right after they settle the land. But then after a helpful meeting, they end up solving the problems. Everyone goes away in peace. And I think there's a lot that can be learned about that, uh, especially as, you know, you look at, at churches who are all a part of the kingdom of God, sometimes civil wars uh, arise. Uh, sometimes you have people who, without all the information, begin to judge other Christians or judge other churches. And you sometimes have gossip and rumors that spread where we're giving people the least sympathetic interpretation of their answers, or we're assuming the worst when other people are, are doing something. And, and to me, Joshua 22 is an excellent reminder to slow down, uh, to listen well, to maybe have conversations with people before you assume the worst about them, uh, and to pursue peace rather than immediately jumping to war. Um, but some of those passages that uh, are helpful background information for understanding Joshua 24, one of them comes from Joshua chapter 1. So if you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 1, this is uh, right after the passage we read this morning. So this morning we looked at God's call to Joshua. He uh, repeatedly reminds Joshua, encourages Joshua, that I will be with you. And then he moves on to say, because I will be with you, you be strong and courageous. Because you have a very powerful friend on your side. And the way to maintain that relationship is that I will, out of grace and love, be with you. And you continue to keep the law close to your heart and mind. Meditate on it day and night. You draw closer to me. And as you do that, we'll have a very good relationship as we take over the promised land and as we divvy up the land among everyone. And so right after God gives Joshua that call, Joshua then uh, gives a call. He then calls on some of the, the people of Israel to fulfill their roles and their tasks. Um, he calls in chapter 1 and verse 10, the officers of the people, basically telling them, hey, get ready because we're about to go over there in a couple of days. Uh, but then when you get to verse 12, he does something else. Now, this is one of those Bible stories where Bible geography is really helpful to know. Uh, it's not a, a major, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly simple, I guess, to, to, uh, to understand. But something you need to know in order to understand the story is that there's a river that goes right in the middle of Israel. Um, you have uh, 12 tribes that own land, and then you have the Levites who get land in between them. But among those 12 tribes, two and a half of them are on the eastern side of the river, and all the other tribes are on the western side of the river. And there's this river, or Jordan River, it goes right in between them. And so on the eastern side, you have uh, Reuben, you have Gad, and you have half of the tribe of Manasseh. The tribe of Manasseh is actually large, and it has half of it on this side of the river and half of it on the other side of the river. And so you have two and a half tribes, and then all the other tribes in this river right in the middle of them. Okay, so as they are approaching the promised land, 
They have to cross that Jordan River to get into the land. But do you know what they've already done? As Joshua begins, they've already settled that land on the eastern side. Like, that's already their land. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they, could, they already have like, their land they can stay in. They could just you know, kick up their feet and enjoy life. They've done their battle. They've got their land. They're done. And so one option they have is to say, all right, hey, good luck, everyone. Go take that promised land. We're rooting for you. Um, but Joshua says, we want you to do more than just that. The Lord wants you to do more than just that. Moses actually said this earlier back in, I think it was number 32. Uh, Moses calls them not just to take this land and to settle it, but then to continue marching on and to help your brothers out take the rest of the promised land. This is a team effort. Everyone needs to be involved in it. So just because you already have your land doesn't mean you can drop out of the battle. And the same is going to be true once they cross the Jordan River. It's not like once they conquer this place, all right, this tribe can settle and then they don't help out anymore. They're all a team in this thing. They're all one nation joining together to take the whole land. And so don't let that river keep you from helping out your brothers. And so that's what Joshua's message is going to be beginning in verse 12. Uh, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 12 says, to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All right, those are the ones who already have their land on the eastern side. He says, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, there's that uh, expression again, that, that little description, the servant of the Lord, he commanded you saying, the Lord, give you, uh, the Lord God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your cattle may remain in the land which Moses gave to you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array, all of your valiant warriors, and you shall help them. So he says, all right, you already have your land. You already got that with Moses. But leave your wives, leave your children at home, leave your cattle. They don't have to go into battle. They can start setting up your lives. That's good. But all of you men and all of you warriors, you cross the river with everyone else and you go into battle. Uh, he goes, he continues on in verse 15. You help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest, just as he gave you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God gave them. Then you shall return to your land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. Uh, and so, I mean, it makes sense. Everyone helped them get their land. So just because you have it doesn't mean you stop. You go and you help the rest of the tribes get their land. Then once all the land is, is taken, then you go back home. Meet back with your wife and children, enjoy life together. Uh, and so that's what this call is. And uh, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they could say, eh, we don't really want to. But they don't do that. Uh, they do what God has said. They do what Joshua said. In fact, they're very enthusiastic about it. In verse 16, they answer Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And we will go, um, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. So you remember we talked about it this morning. One of the major points, uh, especially in the early chapters of Joshua, is establishing that Joshua now carries the same authority that Moses did. Uh, and that's going to be important for all the people listening to him. He, he's given the full range, just like Moses. And so the tribe responds appropriately. All that Moses said, we obeyed, and we're going to do the exact same for you. Uh, if you look at verse 17, uh, when it says, Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Uh, that's, that's what God promised. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. And that's what they're praying for right there. Then verse 18, anyone who rebels against your command 
and does not obey your words and all that you command shall be put to death, only be strong and courageous. So they're actually borrowing the same language that God has used in his call of Joshua, and they're saying, you do it, and we're going to be with you. The Lord's going to be with you. We're going to be with you. No one should disobey your command. Be strong and courageous, and we'll do this thing together. All right, so then you read the book of Joshua, and uh, there's a few downs. There's a lot of ups, but they're generally successful in taking the land. The other passage that's an important, helpful background to understanding the controversy of Joshua 22 is found back in, the Deuteron- in Deuteronomy. It's found back in uh, the writings of Moses. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12 now. All right, so the first thing you need to, I guess there's three things important to understand. One of them is geography. Uh, there's a river splitting these, uh, these tribes. The second thing is the, the commission. Just because you finished getting your land doesn't mean you're done. You go help everyone else get their land and then you return back home. The third thing is some laws that Moses gave regarding location and worship. And we don't often think this way because we can worship God just as much here in Maryville, Tennessee, as you can in Albania, as you can in uh, other parts of the world and throughout, you know, the, no matter what nation you're a part of, no matter what city you're in. And we often do it in church buildings, but we know that you can worship in a house. You can worship uh, on, a, in a, on a mountain. You can worship God under a tree at the park. Like, when we think about worshiping God, we don't think of pilgrimage. Pilgrimage isn't really a part of our religious practice very much. Some people, you know, there's some benefit to going and seeing the Holy Lands or something like that, but that's not an essential part of Christianity. A lot of other religions, location matters a lot more. Uh, one of the things that's important about Christianity is it's, it's a worldwide, it's, it's for the nations. Uh, you know, it is something that Jesus was a Jew, but he's opening up the door to the Gentiles. And that was controversial, but it's important to note you can just as much be a Christian in Antioch or Athens as you can in Jerusalem. And uh, you can just as much be a Christian here in Maryville as you can anywhere else in the world. Um, it was not always quite like that in Israel. Location mattered. The tabernacle mattered, and the temple very much mattered. Um, if you, so when, when Israel had their civil war after the reign of Solomon, and they split to the north and to the south, the northern tribes under Jeroboam, they set up two golden idols, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And the reason they did this is because they knew that the temple is there in Jerusalem. And if all of our people have to go to Jerusalem to worship God, then they're going to end up uh, reuniting with Jerusalem and Judea. It's like they're the people in the south, and we don't, want to, we, don't have to, we don't want to have to rely on them for our religious practices. So we need our own places of worship. And so they set up their own priests, and they set up their own places of worship. Why did they do that? Because location mattered. And they, they knew that the place you're supposed to worship God is Jerusalem. So we'll, we'll make some new places to worship God up here. Uh, and so that's what Jeroboam did. The logic of that only makes sense if you recognize that pilgrimage and going to a certain place matters. And so what do, uh, Moses is going to say here is that you're not allowed to just worship God and offer sacrifice any old place you want to. There is a specific place that the Lord has chosen from among the tribes for his name to dwell, and there you shall go to offer your worship. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5, Moses writes, You shall seek the Lord at the place where the Lord your God will choose from all his tribes to establish his name there. 
for his dwelling, and there you shall come. So God's going to dwell somewhere, and he's going to choose that place, and he's going to put his name there, and that's where you're supposed to go. Verse 6 says, There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution of your hands and your votive offerings and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herd uh, and of your flock. And there you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings which the Lord your God has blessed you. So he's saying there's a specific place that God's going to choose and that's where you go. Uh, it's the tabernacle, and then eventually that will settle in Jerusalem, and it will be the temple. And that's where God chooses for his name to dwell. And that's where you go to offer your offerings. And that's where you go when you offer like a peace offering, and then you and your family and the priests, you eat the meal together of the animal that was then burnt up, and some of it gets burnt up to God, and that's where you have your, your meals. What you're not supposed to do is go find any old place to go offer your sacrifice to God. Um, when you look at verse 10, of Deuteronomy 12. It says, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, he, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, that's like the book of Joshua, um, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, that's going to be Jerusalem, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, and the choice votive offerings, which uh, you will vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Then notice verse 13. Be careful. This is important. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do what I command you. Okay, so when it comes to offering burnt offering to the Lord, there's a specific place that you're supposed to do that. And it's going to be the tabernacle because that's where the altar is and that's where you worship God and that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the dwelling of God is. And it will eventually be the, uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem. But that's where you're supposed to go and you're supposed to do it through the priests. You are not supposed to set up your own altars and set up your own places to go worship God in any old place you see. There's a specific way to do this and God wants Israel to know that. Okay. So we have all of our background information for a story that pops up in Joshua chapter 22. Turn with me there now. Uh, Joshua chapter 22. So the children of Israel have been successful. Uh, if you look at the end of Joshua 21, we learn they've been very successful. Joshua 21:43 says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to their fathers, and they possessed it and they lived in it. And the Lord God gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of their enemies stood before them. And the Lord gave them all their enemies into their hand. And then notice verse 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So they did it. Their land has been divided. If you read like the chapters before this, it is just like location. It's, it's a map, but since you, they didn't draw a map, it's a map being read to you. And so it is a, from our standpoint, it can be kind of dry. Uh, it's just like, all right, from this big rock over to that lake, down to this tree over, that's your portion. And, and it's like page after page after page of just a description written out of a map. But it's to the children of Israel, probably fascinating information because they're finding out 
finally where they get to live and finally what uh, has been promised to their forefathers that they've been waiting for their entire lives and that their, their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have been waiting for. They're finally getting to see where they're going to live and finding out what their portion is and thinking about what they're going to do with it and what they're going to grow and what they're going to have. Like, to them, it's really exciting stuff. To us, it's a little hard to read through it. But the main point is that God has given them rest. God has given them their land, and they now get to rest in it and enjoy it. So what does that mean for Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? They get to go back home. They've been away from their wives and away from their children and away from their homes. They haven't been able to start that yet because they've been helping their brothers take the rest of the land. But now it's done, and they get to go back. And so it's a really happy time for everyone. Everyone gets to go to their homes. Uh, and so you look at Joshua chapter 22 in verse 1. This is when that, that uh, Joshua begins to speak to them again. And he tells them, you guys have done a great job. Uh, in verse 1 it says, Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers in these many days to this from uh, these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful, and this is his final word, his final admonition to them, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's actually a really powerful admonition to give someone. You can make an entire lesson out of that verse right there, just kind of noting the, the verbs there. But what Joshua's saying is, you guys did it. You helped out your brothers. We were, we were together in this. Now there's rest in all the lands So go back home. Enjoy life. Enjoy your families. Enjoy uh, the, the land that you have to possess. But be faithful to God the entire time that you're there. And they agreed to it. Uh, verse 6 says that Joshua blessed them, and he sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, um, as you keep reading, they do something once they're there. And what they do ends up causing quite a stir in all of Israel. In fact, a lot of people get really upset and really nervous about it. Verse 10 through 12 describes uh, what they go on to do. It says, when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard about it. Okay, so here's what they do. They go back and they build this huge altar. Well, what are you going to do with an altar? Where are you supposed to be worshiping God? Are you supposed to do it like on an altar you build wherever you want to? Are you supposed to go to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to do this? Like, why are you building an altar there when there's already an altar outside the tabernacle, which is where God wanted his altar to be, and which is where you're supposed to go for worship? And so they build this huge altar as, like, as they're leaving, and then uh, the sons of Israel hear about it. In verse 11 and 12, it says, behold, the sons of Reuben, this is what Israel's talking about now, uh, the, the other tribes. 
Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they've built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. When the sons of Israel heard about it, the whole congregation of Israel and uh, uh, the sons of Israel, they gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. It's like, that, that got out of hand quick. <laughs> like, like, so they build this altar as they're leaving, and Israel sees it, and they think, oh no. They have already started to turn away from the command of God. They've already started building altars. It's been two minutes. What are they doing? And so, like, they decide, well, we can't have this. If we allow them to start doing this, then all of our relationship with God, which is based on, on the, the covenant that we have with him, we're going to be throwing away our covenant. So in order to keep this land and to keep a relationship with God, we have to do something about this. And here's what they decide to do war. They're going to go and they're going to wipe out Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh because they've already started to turn away from the Lord. And so what you're seeing here is that Israel is taking very seriously their call to be faithful to the Lord. And, and I mean, even, even back in chapter one, remember what Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said to Joshua after he told them to go help out your brothers? Verse 18, they said, Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. All right, so they're saying this, like obeying matters. And then they go and they do this. And so the, the rest of Israel saying, well, okay then. Uh, if that's what you're asking for, that's what we're going to do. And so they start to prepare for war. They start to prepare for battle. Well, when you get to verse uh, 13, you start seeing that they're gathering all the heads of the households together, and they're trying to get everyone prepared to go to, to have a civil war. That, that, that river is going to be the barrier between the civil war. Just like we you know, think of the, the north and the south, they were going to have a war between east and west. Uh, and, uh, and that's what they're preparing to do. Verse 16, uh, this is when they communicate with Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, and they tell them what their plans are. So, uh, verse 16, it says, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. All right, so they're, they're about to, to uh, try to maybe hash some things out, which is a really important step before the battle ensues. And it says, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Is, it not, is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us? That's a reference to uh, Numbers 25 when Israel started, uh, basically they started sleeping with the women of, of um, Moab and they uh, were worshiping the gods of Baal and, and they were at Peor and uh, Phineas ends up going and, and rather violently putting an end to some of that and there's a plague that breaks out among the people. And he's, he's saying, is not the iniquity of Peor enough from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came from the uh, upon the congregation from the Lord? It's like, we just got punished for this not long ago, you know, back there in Peor, and you're doing the same type of stuff right now by bringing your disobedience into Israel. Then verse 18, uh, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. I mean, there's some logic to that. Like, if you guys start doing this now, everyone's going to suffer because of it. So, verse 19, if, however, 
the land of your possession is unclean, like if that land over there is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. And then again, it reminds him of a sin earlier in Joshua. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban and the wrath fell upon all of the congregation of Israel, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquities. So when Achan sinned by stealing some of the things from Jericho and hiding them under his tent, all of the Israelite warriors were losing when they went to battle Ai. So the sin of one tribe or one people can have ramifications for the whole people. So don't do this. And so it's like, do you need to come to our land? Do it. But make sure you don't build some other tabernacle and make sure you don't build some other altar. Come to the altar which we already have, the one that God has established for himself, the one at the tabernacle. That's what you should do. All right. And so at this point, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh I don't think have any idea that what they did has become such a major controversy. Um, as we'll find out, they actually had rather good intentions. They weren't trying to do anything offensive, and they certainly weren't trying to turn away from the Lord their God, and they absolutely weren't trying to start a civil war. They actually did something they thought was a good idea. And so we're going to find out what their idea was, and you realize, oh, Oh, okay, you weren't doing anything that wrong. Uh, this was a terrible miscommunication that happened. Um, so it's a good thing we talked. And so here's how they respond. In verse 22, they start off, they say, The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows. And may Israel itself know. It, if it was in rebellion or in an unfaithful act against the Lord, then do not save us this day. They say, oh, oh no, hold on, like God knows our hearts right now. He knows what we were doing and we want you guys to know also. If we were trying to be rebellious, then right. We shouldn't be saved right now. You should wipe us out. But, uh, verse 23, if we have built uh, for us an altar to turn away from following God, or if to burn, uh, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings on it, or to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. But truly, we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying, in the time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us, and you, sons of Reuben and sons of Gad, you have no portion with Israel, so your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. So here was the logic. This river is a natural border between us. And it may come about that the day will arise in the future when your sons don't know that we've helped you take this land. They don't know that we've worked together. They don't know that we're brothers. They just see that there's these other people on the other side of the border, and they think, why don't you worship God over there, and we'll do it over here. What do you have to do with us? And all of a sudden, they'll start making a distinction and separating from us, and we don't want that to happen. So they built this altar actually as a witness or a memorial or as a reminder that the people on the other side of this river, they're on the same team as us. It wasn't for like offering sacrifice or anything. We would never do that. It's, it's a statue. It's a reminder. It's a memorial so that they'll see it and they realize, okay, they worship the same God as us. We're, we're one in the same here. And so uh, verse 26, therefore we said, let us build an altar. Not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness 
between us and you and between our generations after this, that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. You know, so if, if, if Israel forgets the history and the connection, then all of a sudden they start crossing the, the river to come over to worship in Jerusalem. They start saying, wait a minute, what are you doing here? You guys stay over there. There's a border here. God made this border between us. So let's be two different peoples. And they do not want that. So it's actually something motivated out of unity. It's actually a reminder to worship the Lord. It's a reminder to cross the river and, and go worship with these other people. So like they're doing it to help uh, build unity for future generations. And Israel thought they were doing it just to start offering sacrifices to God and forbidden places. And so they have very different interpretations of this altar. They maybe should have wrote a sign or something and put it on there that would help explain the situation, but they apparently didn't do that. And so uh, verse 28 says, therefore we said, it shall also come about if they say to us or to our generation in time to come, then we will say, uh, see the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it's a witness between you and us. So, so the goal is, if that time does come, then we will be able to point to the altar and say, no, 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 no. That altar is there for a reason. It shows that we're one. It shows that we worship the same God. It shows that we're, we're, we're brothers with one another. So verse 29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord to this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering, or for sacrifice, besides the altar which the Lord your God, which is before his tabernacle. So it's like, we would never build an altar for sacrifice other than the one at the tabernacle. That's the one that, that you should be using. This altar is not for that. It's simply a reminder that we worship together that we worship the same God so that now in future generations we'll be able to see this and we'll be able to come together. Well, after this happens, then uh, they've had their conversation and here's what the other tribes decide. This is in verse 31. Uh, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the sons of Reuben, to the sons of Gad, and the son, uh, sons of Manasseh, so the representative from the west is now going to talk to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, and he says... Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And then look at verse 33. This word pleased the sons of Israel and the sons of Israel blessed God and they did not speak of going up against them to war to destroy them uh, in the, uh, which the sons of uh, Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And and then verse 34, the sons of Reuben um, and the sons of Gad called this altar witness, for they said, it is witness between us that the Lord is God. And so they have the conversation, then they say, oh, okay, good. So we're going to go put our weapons back up, and we're going to go back home. Uh, we don't need to have a war right now. Uh, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that we had this conversation. They end up naming that altar witness, and then there's peace in the land. And that's the end of the story. It's like, wow, things got really close to, to getting out of hand. Like, things got really close to being horrible right there. It shows us, I believe, a number of points. Because this same type of stuff still happens. It might not happen like where, you know, everyone gets their battle axes and gets prepared for war. But 
the type of thing where you see someone doing something and you automatically assume the worst types of motives. Or uh, you see someone doing something and instead of talking to them, you talk amongst yourselves and gossip and rumors swirl and then all of a sudden we have interpreted their actions in certain ways. And that type of stuff is really, really damaging. So as we uh, draw our lesson to a close, there are a couple of points I think we should remember when it comes to... uh, comes to applying this story today. One of them goes all the way back to the first chapter. I think it's a helpful reminder. Um, We can't have a that's not my problem type of approach to our other brothers and sisters in Christ. What I mean by that is Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, at the beginning of the story, they already had their land. They already had where they were going to live. They could have started working on their own lives. They could have said, well, you guys take the rest of that. That's not my problem. I already have my house. Um, But they didn't. They were told, no, these are your brothers. You go help them. I think when it comes to uh, being the body of Christ, when we look at other brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't approach them with a, well, that's not my problem. You know, you guys deal with that. I'm going to focus on me. I already have my own issues to deal with. Uh, So what this passage is calling Israel to do is to look out for one another. To, to work together with one another, to be a team and to be a family with one another. Even if you could just comfortably stay in your own house, get out and help your brothers and sisters. And I think that's an important call for us. If we want to have unity, we have to remember that uh, others matter. And because of that, we have to reach out to them. Uh, secondly, it is true in the concern that Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh have, it is true that time and distance can cause us to forget. Like, the longer you go without talking to someone, the longer you go without spending some quality time with a brother or sister in Christ, you can grow distant from that person. You can see it happen in a community where you have maybe multiple churches that are are in the same city or in the same location. The longer they go without any interaction, without time and talking, the easier it is for them to grow separate to uh, forget that we're not the only Christians here. There are other people here who are serving God, and there are other people here who are are trying to live lives of faithfulness that are on the same team as us. Uh, The longer you go with no interaction, you can have the types of problems like this that emerge, that they're concerned about. We need to remember that that we do have brothers and sisters here, uh, that we do have people here who are trying to serve Jesus as we are, and it's important to try to rekindle some uh, flames that might, over time and over distance, go out. Uh, We can have fellowship in ways that strengthen our commitment and not let the Jordan River or the borders or the barriers of the different buildings uh, separate us and keep us from doing that. Um, Number three, communication can really solve a lot of problems. Um, Again, if you spend, uh, if you let time and distance cause separation uh, and there's no communication, then it becomes really, really easy to start seeing something another church does, or seeing something another Christian does, or seeing something another person does, and immediately assume the worst. And then because you don't have any communication with them, if you're going to talk about it, you talk about it in your own circle. And that's gossip, and that's how rumors get going. And and all of a sudden, by doing that, you can start to have very negative views about these other people, even though you've never even talked to them about it. By the way, this happens all the time. Uh, I, know, I know of someone uh, in Oklahoma, he taught a lesson, it was a controversial lesson, uh, and uh, because of that, 
he has, uh, he's, he's dealt with, with some struggles that have come up, not just in his own church, but in some of the other churches. But what's fascinating is some of the other churches who are saying a lot of things about him, they haven't even talked to him about it. Like, they haven't even tried to study with him. He's offered, and they've refused, and yet they still talk about him. And all of a sudden, it's like, I bet if you had open and honest and, like, um, tried to have an understanding conversation with each other uh, where you weren't just assuming the worst, it'd probably help. But because that's not happening, it's just like the friction grows more and more and more intense. And so if you're going to talk about someone, rule number one, probably don't, uh, is, is a good uh, way, way, to, way to follow that. But something to keep in mind also is if you're going to talk about another group, don't do it if you wouldn't say that exact same thing in their presence. Uh, I think that's a good, good uh, if you're trying to figure out, is this gossip or is this not gossip? One of the things you could ask is, would I want to say this if they were standing right here? And if you wouldn't, then it's probably gossip, and you probably shouldn't say it. Uh, that's, that's, that's a good rule of thumb to go by. But conversation with another person or with another group could really go a long ways. If they hadn't had that conversation, it would have been a terrible story and a horrible mistake. That conversation helped save both of them. Uh, and so uh, conversation, communication matters a lot. Um, number four, it's important to think about future generations. This isn't the only time in Joshua that something was done on behalf of future generations knowing about the Lord. Do you remember when they crossed the Jordan River, uh, each of the 12 tribes was supposed to pluck out stones and they can go and take, use those stones from the middle of the Jordan and to set them up as, an altar, as, a, as a memorial, as a reminder, so that in future generations, when your children are like, what are all those stones about? What's that memorial about? You can then teach them the story of God. You can teach them the story of God bringing us across the Jordan into the promised land. You can teach the story that all of us, all of the tribes contributed together to make this because we're one and we're family. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of important teaching that can be done. And they were doing that in honor of teaching those who weren't even born yet. Like they were thinking about humans who didn't even exist yet, but thinking one day they will exist and we want to be able to teach them. The things that a church does and the decisions that, that people make, whether it's your family or whether it's your church family, it's very important to keep in mind those who are coming after you and to remember to uh, include them into the decision-making process because they they're going to have souls. And they are going to, uh, you're going to want them to grow. You're going to want them to, uh, to become leaders and become faithful Christians. So do things now in honor of those who will uh, come later. And then finally, all things that you do, try your very best to do them to the honor and glory of God. Because as you read this story, um, something almost terrible happens. And yet, both sides of it, neither of them seem to have had bad intentions. Neither of them seems to be trying to dishonor God in what they were doing. You have the ten tribes who were saying, hey, they are uh, setting up altars to worship God in a forbidden way or possibly even to worship other gods. We need to go and put an absolute stop to this now. And they're doing that because they want to honor their commitment to God. And then you have the other group who's saying, hey, let's build this memorial as a way of reminding people in future generations that we serve God and, and, and as a way of showing our unity with the people on the other side of the river. And they were doing it to honor God. And they, like, no one did anything technically wrong. Uh, they were both doing what they thought was right, and they were both doing what they were trying to, to honor God. And because of that, when they did have this conversation, things worked out really well. 
they were like, oh, okay, I see your point, and I see your point. Uh, you were going to do the right thing uh, if we had been acting, you know, against the will of God, and we weren't trying to do that. And so, like, because they both had that same intention, it ended up helping to, to solve this problem from getting worse and worse and getting out of hand. And so, uh, if your intention is to honor God, that doesn't always make your actions right, but I think it certainly is going to It'll, it'll help. It'll put you usually in the right direction if that's what you're trying to do. Uh, and so remember that as you act in the church, as you take on ministries, as you respond to the call of God, in what you do, try to honor God. Honor God by keeping his word. Honor God by thinking about how this will reflect upon him. Honor God by trying to strengthen the church. But Whatever it is you do, try to do it to the honor of God. And if there is controversy, it becomes a whole lot easier to explain why this was done than, oh, I was trying to do something out of uh, pride and to benefit myself or something like that. Like, it becomes a lot easier to explain your motives when your motives are actually pure. So try to do things in such a way that brings honor and glory to God. Um, I think it's a really helpful passage, and it's actually a really important one as they enter into the promised land and begin life there, because it sets a good foundation for what unity and what honor and service to God and worship is to be based on. And you can see that how talking to one another, even when there's a barrier there like the Jordan River, it can solve a lot of problems. So let's make sure that we take that mindset uh, in our personal relationships and our relationships with other Christians and our relationships with other churches. I think there's a lot that can be learned uh, based on Israel here. If there's anyone here tonight who uh, you would like the prayers of the church or if anyone would like to become a Christian tonight, we pray that you would let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.